Ever since humans began looking up at the stars, there has been speculation about whether or not we are alone in our solar system. Where do they live? How do they look like? And have they ever visited us and had any effect on our history as human? Some do, and we will examine their evidence. Let's start. Hi, and welcome to the first ever episode of Digging Up Ancient Aliens. My name is Frederick, and I'm super excited to have you here listening to me talking about aliens and science. So we will dig down into the first episode of Ancient Aliens called The Evidence. It was aired on April 20th, 2010. So I would like to start with... Um, explaining what I think the episode will be about and maybe what it might contain. So just starting with the evidence, it's quite logic to be honest, um, strong start. I think they will talk a lot about uh, Van Däniken and uh, the Chariots of the Gods, uh, one of his books. And I think there will be a lot of stock uh, film uh, of uh, Egypt mostly but Pascal I would think uh, would show up too uh, maybe the Nazca lines but to be honest I'm not really sure what their strongest evidence might be so it will be a interesting journey but I will be surely disappointed if Van Däniken or Zachariah Stitchen would not be up here and I would assume that they have a token skeptic that might be a bit cut out of uh, context when he speak about something or just turn quite tired and say yeah maybe that might be so but um, but yeah I don't really have much to compare with yet uh, since this is the first episode so let's start so they start with uh, opening shot on Earth and that quickly moves on to heavy machining um, that's cutting huge crane that operating big blocks and then some airplanes comes up and the speaker goes on talking about um, that the answer to the question if aliens have visited us uh, becomes more and more like it would be a yes and then they cut into the intro music vignette and the animation is quite 2010 maybe a bit earlier assuming they haven't really gotten any budget yet for huge uh, productions so it's a good effort uh, the tune is quite bombastic and match what they want to 
be serious, so to say. So the opening after the intro on um, Saqqara in Egypt. So a good start. And we see Joseph's step pyramid. As I thought in the beginning, it would be about Egypt. And here I thought they would talk about pyramid building, to be honest. Um, but no. Um, we will only see a few more clips of George's step pyramids and then they will start talking about a bird. Well, yeah, you will see. Um, they talk a little bit about um, Saqqara, uh, City of the Dead, one of the older burial sites in Egypt and that's correct. So far so good. Don't see any big issues but they are opening up on a wooden bird. We see a few pictures of it and it comes from what they claim a 1891 excavation by a French team um, who were excavating the tomb of uh, Paddy Eamon. From what I could find it seems that it's well it was dug up in the tomb of Paddy Eamon by French archaeologists but in 1898 so a bit of a differ but no not huge same decade <laughs> at least it might be a slip of the tongue or some tired researcher um, not a huge problem there but they're talking about uh, well, what's known as the Sakara bird is a um, wooden bird carved out of sycamore wood and the wingspan on it is about 18 centimeter I'm sorry I'm European uh, so I'm used the metric system but to be kind to any American uh, that might be listening it's uh, 7.1 inches and roughly the same length on the body as the wingspan and a few centimeters wide and its tail is the wrong way so you think that the tail would be horizontal and this bird is vertical it might be some artistic creativity or just that the creator made a mistake i've done mistakes on wood carvings um, not all the time have i tried to <laughs> uh, fix it or maybe it's just nicer to play with i don't know but they move on and talk a little bit about um, the bird. They're mentioning that um, a doctor, Calais Messiah, um, noticed the bird and thought that it looked like an airplane. Uh, they call Calais a doctor, and he is, but uh, a physician. And apparently, this is important. He is also a dowser. So maybe not so much a authority on flying machines, but hey, let's see what they think it might be. And we meet uh, our first two uh, alienists, I might call them. Uh, one, Dr. Uwe Appel, that not to be mean, but sort of looks like 
you know, the bad guys in Super Mario movie. Um, and a Dr. Algund Inbum, who they credit as a doctorant. He is. He's a dentist, uh, also an author. And he looks like an evil groundskeeper. Um, not to be too mean, but just <laughs> uh, yes, what I thought. And they're talking about the aerodynamics aerodynamics of the bird and they're holding up a few models of it but from what I could see it on I don't really think those models match the bird uh, from the museum photos exactly uh, it's we don't get any great pictures of the different models and usually a bit from the far or they have little smaller copies but it feels as they have carved the bird to be more aerodynamic the bird is well decent bird uh, shaped so it's pretty aerodynamic from the start since it's well bird um, but Anyway, I will see if I can find pictures that I could show you, uh, put them in the show notes, uh, but I'm not sure since I don't own any rights to the TV series, but I see if I can find some um, something maybe on Wikipedia that could be at least linked to. But anyway, uh, they're starting to ask a bunch of questions and we see pictures of them putting um, a bigger model of the bird, Sakara bird in um, a wind tunnel and um, discuss, uh, discussing how aerodynamic it really is and they also talk a bit about the tail uh, as I said the tail is carved in the wrong way so it's vertical and on the left side it has a small tear in there discussion is this where where uh, elevator uh, was elevator is uh, the little wing the horizontal wing on an airplane that plane that helps the plane uh, shift uh, so to say and to be honest of course there could have been something there but it seems like just ordinary like it's been dropped or just is really old is dated to the 200 BCE um, so it, it's been around for some time and of course wood uh, cracks and of course it can have been dropped in uh, ancient times too but they want to get it to be a model airplane very small model airplane but to me it looks like some sort of child's toy maybe and we we do have examples of toys uh, or objects that could be at least for us uh, perceived as toys uh, in tombs we have um, different sort of dolls and um, anything from rag dolls to more intricate uh, dolls that could even move we have uh, one example of a wooden uh, a doll carved out of wood and that's mechanical would be the wrong word but uh, if you move it it looks like it's um, 
milling grain, so to say, uh, grinding uh, grain. So basically toys that we, like the ones we have today, uh, we even have examples of, well, at least one wooden horse with little wheels on it, so it could be dragged across the floor uh, on a string. There's also something that looks like a mouse game uh, where the jaw is unhinged. Uh, it seems like you use some sort of stick to operate it somehow. Unfortunately, how it was used or played has been lost to the histories. Uh, it could also be according to some archaeologists, something relating to the cult of Horus. It could be. It looks a bit falconry if you look at it. Um, or maybe Paddy Eamon just were into Falcon and the family wanted him to have Falcons in the afterlife. And there's some many good theories. Um, or at least better theories than the alienist. Alienist, would that be a good word? Um, well, uh, the alien experts. Because they want it to be a glide plane. Yeah, a glide plane. Uh, the first issue, <laughs> or one of the issues, would be launching since gliders are launched by another airplane with an engine makes it hard for a glider to be launched in ancient Egypt at least they are not claiming that they had jet engines thank Odin for that uh, or even propeller engines uh, but well uh, how they launched it they have thought this through they are claiming it was launched by catapult and mr groundkeeper inboom says quote the scientifics of egyptology say that such a bird could have been powered off by a catapult to fly and we had had high acceptance by egyptian scientists and if you go to uh, time mark 616 um, you notice that this is not taken out of context, is what he say. What scientific Egyptologists, you might ask, they don't bother to tell you, but... Um, well, the Egyptian scientists have accepted this explanation for the Saqqara bird and how they made it to fly. And... To show you how it was done properly, they even got some uh, computer rendered uh, images of this. And if you have the chance, uh, you should really go and see this. So first of all, um, the CGI they are using. I do understand that it's the first episode of the first uh, series, so I assume their bodies was pretty low, but really, in 2010 when this was produced and released, we had uh, games like uh, Red Dead Redemption, Mass Effect 2, Fallout New Vegas, games that's, that were and still are uh, good and have, for being 10 years old, decent graphics still, I would say. But 
in the show it looks like somebody's uh, grumpy teenage nephew uh, did it. Uh, it's pretty bad, to be honest. <laughs> um, but they're claiming it was launched by Catapult. So issue number one is that they don't show you a catapult. Uh, catapults during this era was pretty small uh, to start with. Uh, this one that they show if you take the people on the screen and then you let's assume that they use the average height of the people back then. Uh, let's put it in the upper end. That would mean that they are roughly 160 centimeters tall uh, or 5.2 feet. And that means that the catapult or that catapult or what they call uh, a catapult would be 4.8 meter or 15 feet, eight inches. And to be honest, we don't really have examples of these big catapults uh, with bunny ears um, during this era, but they're not showing you a catapult. They are showing you a trebuchet, which is way different <laughs> from a catapult. Um, so a uh, 200 BCE catapult would be much smaller to start with. And on a good day, they could fling a stone, um, roughly 90 meters. Sure, they could probably sling a big wooden bird, uh, roughly the same distance, maybe. I haven't tried it, but... It, you wouldn't soar through the airs with it. Um, so where did this technique come from, you might ask. Um, I surely did. And we have um, Dr. Inboom again. I think that people in ancient times were visited by beings coming not from this earth. And they gave us culture and scientific technology to improve our life on Earth. Coming from primitive to highly developed culture. And sure. Um, uh, we meet another um, expert here. Uh, Mr. Graham Hancock. Uh, we are people with amnesia. We don't remember who and what we are. Um, sure. Um, and they continue to talk that something is missing from history, that our records would not be complete. And I can agree with that statement. Um, unfortunately, we, we have lost a lot through ages, um, even as recently as the 1500, the conquistadors uh, and the... Catholic Church burnt a lot of um, Aztec and Maya documents in Mesoamerica and of course um, papyrus um, and paper in general. It's the case unfortunately so yeah we have lost a lot of things through the ages but I don't think that this is what they're really um, aiming at. Um, 
And I don't really understand what in boom thing think that with the his phrase coming from primitive to highly developed culture. The find is from again 200 BCE. Uh, it's late after the Great Pyramids. Uh, writing has been around for uh, 5,000 years. We have agriculture. We have a lot of inventions here. Um, it's only 2,200 years ago. It's it's closer to these people. Um, to us than to the Great Pyramids, almost, almost, I say. Uh, if I get that wrong, please don't write nasty emails. <laughs> um, but yeah, I'm not sure what he means that 200 BC Egypt would be primitive, um, sure, compared to us, but there's still highly developed culture. Um, let's move on. We meet Robert Bouval. Um, again, a bit of ad hominem, but he really do looks like a French Lex Luthor. Uh, but he he's talking about we need to humor the possibility of ancient aliens due to all the anomalies that we can't explain. What anomalies? They don't bring it up here. Let's see what they find out later on. So we're moving from Egypt to Colombia. And what I thought was, yeah, let's go El Dorado. Um, but it was a bit of a tease. Uh, but we are staying in Colombia at least for some time. And we go to uh, the Magdalena River. And they're talking about the gravesite that's roughly one th- dated to 1500 BP. I'm not sure why they're using BP there since uh, it would... Um, be easier with um, BC here to be honest but um, that might be just me and they will talk about uh, the Tolima culture and the gold figurines so these are maybe not super famous uh, South American gold artifacts but they are at least pretty uh, famous. They are little figurines uh, that were found on this grave site, and usually they depict creatures from nature. Nature, but a few looks a bit weirder. I have actually seen this one before. Uh, the ancient aliens. Uh, People usually call this, uh, what did they call it, the, the jet fighter, uh, something like that. Uh, or No, the golden fly, the golden fly, yeah, that's right. Um, this one have a round head, a roundish, hollowish uh, body and, well, not uh, triangular shaped wings, but it has its swirls in the front of them and they're quite flat and sticking out quite a lot and it has a tail that sticks up like on a fish and it also have you could call it an elevator like an airplane but yeah that's what they're heading to and we meet uh, Giorgio uh, H. Tsukalas 
I'm sorry for my pronunciation there. I don't mean to offend anyone, but he, you might know him. Um, at least if you were into memes back in 2010, he he has the eccentric hair that looks like it was shaped with a fork and electrical socket. And he is on this meme with hands aside, closed eyes and usually something aliens. Anyway, um, but he's claiming that they look like fighter jets. Um, you know, since they are triangular shape, upright tail, tail fin, and there's nothing in it that looks like this in nature. So therefore it must be a jet engine, of course. Uh, but they show you a replica and I'm not sure if they just don't look at it or what's really going on because it sure it looks like it but it's in a sense of based on a true story type of way to be honest. So gone are the swirls, the wings are more streamlined and put back and they shaved out of everything that um, don't really uh, that would affect uh, the flying capabilities in a negative way and you can see this uh, by yourself if you go to timestamp 1107 but they basically made it more aerodynamic to make it possible for it to fly since yeah, I think that's the reason why they remove so much uh, from it. So they call it an exact replica. Um, Giorgio even says uh, they did not add an inch or remove an inch. Luckily for him, he's American. Uh, so they just removed a few centimeters. <laughs> Technical right is the best right. Uh, what do you say? So then goes on that this is applied science. Uh, this little thing in a museum could fly. And we meet a Mr. or Dr. Bill Barnes. Don't really say that much of importance. But they dropped this pretty fast. But basically they have um, made a mo larger model of the Golden Flyer. Uh, they stuck a propeller in the front, uh, put the engine on it and added some wheels. And of course it flies, it do have wings and they made some improvements as I said to it. And there's not that much to say about it. They don't really go into details here um, on how it would have flown. Um, no more catapult pictures, but we are moving on to uh, the written sources. And to be honest, I hoped it would get better here. It doesn't really. Um, but you will see, we, we will go through everything. So they talk about uh, rocket science and show pictures of uh, 
NASA log, uh, the NSA uh, logo and rockets and rocket science and scientists and something that uh, rocket systems would be propelled by magnets and that ancient people would have access to it. And they talk about fire-breathing dragons, that they would be a ancient person's way to describe a rocket. Or, um, yeah, I don't really buy that, to be honest. And we meet a Robert H. Frisbee, and that's actually seems to have worked for NASA or NSA back in the day and we also meet someone that I think will show up a lot more at David Childress. Uh, but we will quickly and swiftly move on to India and they give a quite brief introduction to the country. Yeah, it's one of the older civilizations and their Sanskrit text dating back to 6000 BCE basically and they will now start to talk with about the Vimanas. If you don't know what Vimanas are is basically flying castles. In the Sanskrit epics they the gods usually travel around in these flying flying castles. Um, earlier versions uh, that predates the Vimanas usually talk about flying um, uh, carriages uh, or chariots that's drive by different animals, and it seems as these chariots evolve into something. Uh, different um, evolves into these flying palaces for the gods and if you would read the old Sanskrit epics you will actually noticing that it's quite clear what the author is describing uh, it's not a spaceship um, it is a palace and they describe the materials and etc so uh, for me it seems like the authors at least are pretty clear what they want to get across to the uh, to the reader then but they will move on to talk about the Vyamanka Shastra and this book was written uh, we're quite sure about this in 1952 by a G.R. Yosher um, he uh, claims that this book was channeled by a pandit Subaraya, um, pandit Subaraya Shastri between 1918 to 1923, and they don't take up that in the series, to be honest. Um, I would say it's quite important, but. <laughs> As much as I can find out about these books, and I've looked through it, it's available online. Um, and to be honest, most scientific scientists are pretty sure that this is a hoax. Anyway, it was channeled, um, and 
since channeling haven't been yet proven, I'd say. Um, he, the author basically admits it. He wrote it uh, in 1952. Might have been written a bit earlier, but at least around the publishing date. And there's not that much to talk. The description is fantasy, bunk. Um, most of the designs in the book are in a way quite amazing. Um, it looks like some, like it was dreamed up by some sort of steampunk inspired Euler's Verne's wannabe. Uh, you can look it up, the spaceship as they want to call them looks pretty pretty rad. <laughs> um, something that could be used in, I don't know, a Dungeons and Dragons Eberron campaign or something. And the text don't really take up any scientific things that any engineer uh, or scientist working with space programs seems to have used. If the text would have given some valid information on things uh, that are standing in the way in our way, uh, that we humans see at least, uh, to be in the way for interstellar uh, travel, such as uh, cardiovascular deconditioning that leads to orthoastic intolerance in microgravity. I might buy that the book is for real, but it doesn't talk about any of those issues. Um, so... And even there's been studies on the book and, well, well, I found one from 1974 by Dr. Makunda that concludes that none of these aircraft have any properties or capabilities of being flown. And in some cases is even violates Newton's law of motions. I will link this study. It's available online uh, in the show notes. And I will also provide in the show notes um, a bit uh, extra information about my sources and further reading materials if you want to know more about the things that they talk about or that we talk about. And we meet a Michael Cremo and a Dr. Stephen M. Greer that seems also to be a physician. Seems to be a lot of medical doctors in this episode. Um, but uh, Dr. Stephen um, at least talks about that we need to broaden our perspective when we talk about interstellar civilization. And sure, uh, we should be able to talk about a lot of things, but I'm not really sure what he wants to say here, that we need to accept what they're saying. Um since it's an interstellar civilization, or if there's something else, uh, or from what I get at least from his statements, it seems as, yeah, we need to accept the evidence that they're providing as is, and don't really question them too much. It might be me. Um, What do you think? You can write in and yeah, it would be nice to hear your opinion on these 
But they're moving on, continue to talk about the Vimanas uh, that mentioned in the old Sanskrit text. Um, they seem to... I'm not sure if they're mixing up what Vimana really is or if they don't understand because Vimanas isn't books it's part of stories is like I said flying causes of the gods but they're usually referring to the Vimana as some sort of ancient text and especially the Vimanka Shastra uh, but again that one was published in 1952 um, so there's some confusion going on here or it's just me <laughs> maybe it might be it might be uh, I'm open to it um Please correct me if you find anything uh, wrong. Just remember, put in your sources. But then they bring up something that's actually a bit interesting. Uh, they talk about Mercury engines. And from what I could find out, it's a quite complicated things it seems like. But uh, the idea was first published in writing, at least, in 1911 by uh, Tsiolkovsky. And later it appeared in 1923 Germany by scientists and in 1959 uh, Harold Kaufman built actually a working uh, Mercury engine over at the NSA, uh, the Glenn Research Center there. It could be a quite exciting propulsion system but since they haven't done much in headway since the 50s I assume that Either it might be too expensive or too complicated to operate. Um, I have a background in archaeology, not engineering, so uh, I might leave that to an engineer. And if you are and happen to know more, uh, please contact me. Uh, it would be interesting to hear uh, your thoughts on Mercury engines. But it seems as... The episode wants uh, the Mercury engine to be something fantastic, but again, it's from Joser who wrote it in the 50s, and the idea has been around, and just a few years later, Kaufman built one. It seems as he didn't use uh, the Vimanka Shastra, uh, but other research, so uh, yeah, pretty sure that. Um, Dr. Mukunda's statements um, were right about the text. And they talk about a bit of flywheel energy storage and basically they admitting that it's a filler. Um, so we will push on. And for the first time they actually mention something that got me to shiver a little bit. They say mainstream archaeologists. Sure, we, you might call us mainstream, but the proper epithet uh, would be just archaeologists. Especially since the people uh, they comparing it to have no serious background uh, within it uh, but hey uh, people with improper training and background um, have opinions too yeah might have but we actually don't need to take them seriously every time 
it's extremely rare that uh, outsider change all of uh, the scientific um, status quo um, just like that. I can't really come to mind any time in history where that happened. Uh, but, well, uh, mainstream archaeologists, they are afraid of the truth. Uh, they basically say here. And that means that we will move on and talk about Mexico. And the speaker says Mexico and then suddenly we are in South America and at the Nazca lines, of course. I Don't get me wrong, I, I think the Nazca lines are pretty red. Um, but yeah, we will go into a bit more. Uh, the Nazca culture in general is really interesting. Um, I don't know that much. I'm more specialized in uh, Scandinavian early medieval age, so specifically the better known as the Viking Age or Vendel. Um, but I've dabbled in the South American cultures um, took a few courses on it at least. But they're talking about the uh, Nazca lines here for a little bit. Um, but they don't really bring up how easy it is to really do this. So these glyphs are pretty big, um, but you don't really have to do much to really change the color of the ground in this area. So the topsoil uh, is reddish and you can just scrape it quite gently with your foot and make a big mark um, there. But the ancient aliens expert wants it to be an airport since you know more lines that's not in a straight that goes in a straight direction is easier to use when you're landing. Um, and most of the forms are representing animals. Uh, the most famous ones uh, you can see, well, it's a monkey, you have an okra, a hummingbird. Uh, the hummingbird is over two uh, football fields. Uh, I mean, soccer fields, sorry. Um, maybe the animals was for the aliens to remember where they parked their spacecraft. It helps me on the parking lots at least. Uh, where did I park? Oh, the tiger. It could be, could be, but if they were, they in a lot of places made put the parking spots too close together for because. Well, quite a few of these figures actually go into each other, which would make parking quite difficult, maybe. Uh, hey, I don't know here, to be honest, what they are really about. But we, we actually have a good understanding about the age and how it was probably done too. Uh, so ground service, during ground surveys uh, of the Nazca lines, we have found pottery and that's specific for the Nazca people and 
uh, both in and around the lines and we can date this to roughly 400 to 650 um, CE and more Tellingly, we've also found uh, wooden stakes, uh, what we would call maybe wooden survey stakes, um, that's been found in and around the lines. They're also dated to roughly 400 uh, to 650 CE. And, well, the wooden stakes, you could have used them quite easily to draw out one of these figures. You just need a couple of people and the sticks and some string and bam, you're ready to go. Don't need to be much harder than that, to be honest. And if you go to diggingupancientaliens.com, you can in the show notes find some more info on the Nazca Settlement and Society and a bit more about these uh, Nazca lines there. You might ask now, didn't you mention Mexico before? Yes, they did. And we just had a quick detour uh, way south, but we're moving on to Monte Alban, who, according to the speaker's voice, uh, to the speaker had uh, the mountaintop cut straight off. Uh, maybe with space lasers. Okay, they don't say space lasers, but <laughs> that's what I pictured, at least. They're calling it a megalithic city. I'm not super sure about that. It's a well done, quite known um, city, especially uh, among the archaeologists in and they specialized in the Mesoamerican uh, civilizations. And we know that Monte Alban was part of the Zapotec, uh, not empire, but the Zapotec culture. Uh, and they inhabited uh, Monte Alban. Unfortunately, not from what I at least know, uh, we're not clear what they call this area. Uh, but... The Zapotec people built this. You don't need space laser. You just need a large workforce and a society that really can organize labor in a good way. And the Zapotec, they, they had these type of resources. They both had the manpower and they were a, a structured society that, well, <laughs> could uh, organize labor in a proper way. And there's not like any Mesoamerican uh, archaeologists is scratching their head about this project. They're impressed, sure, but it could have been easily done. And we know that the building phase was around 500 BC. And as soon as they had leveled um, the area, they started almost immediately to build uh, temples which would be weird for aliens. And the center of the city is about 200 uh, times 300 meters. And on all sides, it's surrounded by temples and palaces. And it's the most open spot on the mountain. So either the spaceships were 
quiet and easy to land and didn't spit much smoke and fire or yeah and we have Giorgio again claiming that Monte Alban would be some sort of Vimana airport as I said the biggest open area was roughly 200 uh, times 300 meters a normal runway is about 2500 meters or sorry for forgetting it for some time 8000 feet on the low end and the biggest runways are twice that uh, so yeah yeah either the aliens had really quiet spaceships that didn't need runways but why level the big mountain or yeah it didn't happen um, they then move on to Kevran Agast and yeah called Book of the Kings uh, it's an Ethiopian um, book uh, claiming heritage to um, King Solomon of um, uh, of the Torah uh, or the Old Testament and they're talking uh, mostly about um, he that King Solomon was flying in Kebranagast it's quite clear that he is uh, in the text at least flying on a green carpet they want this to be some sort of artistic rendering of a spaceship but I will read a little excerpt when he traveled through the air on his magical carpet of green silk which was borne aloft by the wind according to the king's direction the men stood on the right of it and the spirit on the left and the vast army of birds of every kind kept flying over the carpet to protect its occupants from the heat of the sun don't really sound like a spaceship to me more like an actual flying carpet um, but yeah uh, they mention Chariots of the God for the first time no Van Daniken yet unfortunately but maybe they saving him to further back and I think they talking about all these flying machines that they haven't really proven to be honest the evidence they uh, have shown is quite lacking to be honest uh, but we're switching to map so apparently the map uh, that we find are so incredible detail that they can't have been made by people of the uh, they're talking about the Phineas map and the Mercator map uh, they leave out the Piri Ray map but basically it's uh, 1500 uh, something like that they, they were made and if you look down into it to them a bit better you you're starting to notice that they aren't really exact and there's clearly not uh, written by people who had um, access to 
to air travel and could map from above. Um, they are decent. Um, they're good. And Mercator, his work have affected the maps that we use today. Uh, so in no way they are bad maps. They, they are really good when you think about what they had during this era. But what they're then stuck on that they, the maps are showing Antarctica. And yeah, if you look in the bottom of the map, you will notice that there's written in uh, a landmass there too. They don't, they claim in the show that it's a detailed map of the Antarctica which of course was um, mapped and discovered much, much later. But ever since basically uh, the first century CE, uh, it's been um, talks about that there should be a landmass down south. Um, there's one Claudius Ptolemy, in no relation to the last uh, dynasty of pharaohs in Egypt. Um, but he hypothesized that there should be a continent way down south, uh, according to him, to um, make Earth even, <laughs> even out the Earth. And he were right, basically, uh, first century CE, CE but... Yeah, he didn't have any higher uh, understanding or flying machine, to be honest. But he were right, at least. And we then move on to the book of Ezekiel. And if you do know some something about religion, Ezekiel might be a quite exciting book for you. Um, and it's an interesting part of the Bible. Um, not that I don't believe in it. I'm one of those good old atheists. But they're again saying that Ezekiel clearly saw something he couldn't understand. And since he didn't have words to describe it, he described it in a different way. Especially they're stuck on these wheels within wheels passage. Um, but I do know Ezekiel and to me he describes it just as he claims that he's seen it. And I will read for you an excerpt as we will read Ezekiel 5 through 16. And you can make up your own own mind about this in the end. Each had a form of a human being, but also had four faces and four wings. Their legs were as sturdy and straight as columns, but their feet were hoofed like those of a calf and sparkled from the fire of the burnished bronze. On all four sides, under their wings, they had human hands. All four had both faces and wings, with the wings touching each other. One turned neither one way nor the other. They went straight forward. Their faces looked like this. In front, a human face. 
On the right side, the face of a lion. On the left side, the face of an ox. And in the back, the face of an eagle. So much for the faces. The wings were spread out, with the tips of one pair touching the creature on either side. The other pair of wings covered its body. Each creature went straight ahead. Wherever the spirit went, they went. They did. didn't turn as they went. The four creatures looked like blazing fire, or like fiery torches. Tongues of fire shoot back and forth between the creatures and out of the fire bolts of lightning. The creature flashed back and forth like strikes of lightning. As I watched the four creatures I saw something that looked like a wheel on the ground beside each of the four-faced creatures. This is what the wheel looked like. They were identical wheels, sparkling like diamonds in the sun. It looked like they were wheels within wheels, like a gyroscope. So again, I think Ezekiel is quite clear that he is describing, in this case, angels. And not as the ancient aliens want to get it like um, spaceships. Uh, again, he has a lot of words and he don't really touch on anything that sounds spaceships-like to me, at least. Just this little part about the wheels within wheels. But there's basically half a sentence in the end of a pretty long book and the rest of it don't really measure up to any spaceship at all. But the scientists are apparently too afraid that to accept that we were visited by extraterrestrials because of all the evidence. Again, they're saying this, but they haven't really given us any proper evidence. Uh, one line from the Bible, basically, and it's... Sure, there's things we don't know, but they are handling this like the world's laziest javascript function what if aliens basically and we have um giorgio popping in again uh, with a famous hair my god don't need a vehicle to travel around in i'm not sure that bringing god into all this really uh, would make anything easier or easier explained uh, but they will take a break here and we have talked for quite some time. So you know what? Let's let's have a break. Um, I did realize that the episodes of the first seasons are actually all of them one and a half hour long. So it's a quite long stretch to sit through. And as you're noticing, the episode is turning quite and long already and we're basically halfway through so you know what we will leave here for this time again you will find uh, more info uh, about the show in the show notes you can find those on diggingupancientaliens.com and i'm 
super happy uh, that you made it this far and I hope that you that you like it and if you have any suggestions any comments or maybe you found a mistake I made uh, please correct me on it send in uh, the mistake and um, sources for it and maybe we can uh, take an episode further down the line and uh, correct all of these little things or if you have more info that I might have glossed over uh, it can be nice to bring that up to later on um, but I'm aiming to have the podcast to be around maybe one hour I think that's decent uh, if you like it to be longer we can short to longer um, but um, as I said this is the first episode Woo! and uh, let's start here and see where we end up later um, again um, re- please leave us a positive review wherever you can uh, it can be Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Bathroom Stalls the choice is yours And like us on Facebook, we are also on Twitter, on Instagram. And as I said, check out our website, Digging Up Ancient Aliens. You find all the contact details and more, uh, some info about me, (laughs) if you want to know who I am. Um, And I think we will leave it here. Let's listen to the outro and have a nice time. See you next time. Thank you for tuning in and listening to this episode. Remember that we have a subscription going on. You can become a patron or other subscriber for as little as $2.50 per episode. Go to diggingupancientaliens.com support. That is, go to diggingupancientaliens.com support to read more information and sign up right there.